Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and with me today is Camila Sanchez, who's the director of the International Human Rights Clinic here at UVA Law. Today, we're going to discuss some of his work protecting human rights and how that relates to sustainable development and environmental issues more generally. Hi, Camilo. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. So maybe one place we could get started is just, uh, I'd be curious to hear more about what uh, drew you to the area of human rights law, how you kind of got your start uh, in the area, and, and um, yeah, what, what, what kind of brought you to, that, to this area of work? Sure, sure. I am originally from Colombia, and um, I've witnessed uh, both uh, the toll of the human the, the human rights violations uh, happened during the conflict, but mm -hmm. also the stark economic inequalities in the country. Mm -hmm. So when I finished high school and I started uh, my degree, I, I started my, my career in law, I was drawn to social change. I, I wanted to do something about that and to confront what was happening in the country. And then I had a, a, a class on, on constitutional law that was tremendously important in my life because mm -hmm. then I saw that rights uh, could play a very important role in what was happening. The, this idea of entitlements that you can't uh, request from the state that you could go to court and claim that certain things should happen because of them um, or that they, the state should refrain from doing certain things um, was very powerful. So that's how I got into, into rights in general. And then as many of the local channels, channelists uh, to claim for those rights were either ineffective or mm -hmm. closed in the country, I got interested in international law and how to claim for these rights internationally and how to play with those international courts and try to bring all of those standards and to promote change within the system, the domestic system. So that's how I got uh, interested in, in this. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, there's so much interesting stuff there. I mean, one question that just kind of immediately comes to mind is is the relationship between international courts and and domestic courts and domestic politics in a country like Colombia, um, you know, where there are serious human rights challenges. And obviously, Colombia and similar places are in a different position vis-a-vis uh, -vis international law and international courts than folks in the United than the United States is. So folks are, I think, are um, uh, more, some folks anyway, are more familiar with the, with the U.S. context, where international law, in as much as it relates to, to, to domestic law or domestic politics, it's a very light relationship. And, uh, you know, I think part of what makes international law more compelling as a, as a practice area as, or as a tool, as a lever for change is that um, there is a different relationship between international and international law and international courts um, and domestic law and politics in a place like Colombia. So I was just curious what your, what your thoughts were, at, at, you know, as someone who's kind of been in the trenches at that intersection of domestic politics and international law, um, how, how does international law and what happens in international courts ultimately kind of filter into uh, real domestic change? Sure. Yes, of course. I understand the, the, the question, and um, I'd say that Latin America um, has had a long tradition of resorting to international law, and I think it's historically uh, a step that some of this, the the elite in these countries uh, took um, at the beginning, because I think after they just repeal Spain and they became this um, independent state, mm -hmm. there were broke, hmm. they were weak, mm -hmm. uh, so they were afraid that any other you know, uh, country would take over. So they collectively resorted to international law as a way to protect themselves hmm. from you know, more colonial powers. Hmm. And I think that grew in, 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 in their, their legal systems 
And, and I think those are the origins of, of, of why we pay so much attention to international law. I think as, as a region, you, you will hear that Brazil, Argentina, Costa Rica, Ecuador, you know, all of those countries and their constitutions integrate international law a lot. And I think it comes from, you know, um, from, from, from those times. And, um, and with that, what I think has happened and that I'm, um, a witness to this is that in the mid 80s, early 90s, uh, there was a constitutional shift in the region. Uh, mm -hmm. Many old constitutions were either replaced or they were amended in order to be more open to international law, more open to international institutions. This was a, um, a time in which uh, globalization was uh, starting its way in the world, mm -hmm. in which you you had to be open to the international, both in terms of the markets, the institutions, and in terms of, of, of the legal market as well. Mm -hmm. So with that, what um, the, the legal world in which I grew up in was um, completely connected, interconnected between international institutions and domestic institutions. And um, I think that's, that's um, something that some of these countries have tried to manage and understand and integrate with, uh, you know, different ways to do that. But the, the, very, the very idea is that you are connected to a system. And if you are playing the rules of that system, you have to pay attention to those who have the power to interpret law. And if you have, for example, the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, which is, the, is, which is ultimately that institution that is going to interpret the American Convention on Human Rights or, or the rules that you have, then you have to follow what they say, even if you don't like it domestically. So for example, there are, there are instances in which uh, domestic courts have different interpretations of of the same statute, in this mm -hmm. case, the, the international norm. And the idea is that um, the, the word of the international court would prevail uh, because that's the unifying mm -hmm. institution, apex court, that will have the last uh, word. Um, so in terms of legal interpretation, that makes a lot of sense, Yeah. right? But then what you have is... Um, you, you, you need both interpretation and a ruling, but also you need implementation of that ruling, right? You need to have a, a court that is powerful enough, uh, either because of legitimacy of other powers, that will make those rulings a reality. Right. And that's when it becomes um, um, that that really becomes more difficult to 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 analyze how the system works uh, because there is a, a, a huge implementation gap. What you have, for example, in this case of the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, it's a, it's a very ill-staffed court in Costa Rica uh, that depends a lot on domestic powers to implement the rulings, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you would need states to play um, as they are members that understand their commitments. But if they do not pay attention to what you say, you have very little powers and, and you, have your, you have very little teeth uh, to do that. So it is more like um, you need to engage with them. You need to persuade them to create some sort of um, a legal community, a community of practice that understands uh, the importance of this. And there are, you know, playing in, in both fields, playing in the international field, but also in the domestic field and try to integrate all of those decisions into what is the, the daily lives of these courts and of people. Okay. So I'd say that's one of the, the challenges of, of how to look at one system that it's great at integrating legal standards, but also uh, very weak in terms of um, implementation of those standards. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in the kind of historical perspective um, I think really uh, helps inform, you know, at least how I'm kind of thinking about this, that um, it's a deal in a way, a long-term deal that elites in some of these countries have kind of had where on the one hand they use international law and they rely on um, 
norms in the international community and have relied on these norms to kind of protect their power and their sovereignty and their status. Um, and with that comes some reciprocal <laughs> uh, duties and obligations to the international system, which are uh, sometimes respected more than others. But there's a general background norm that these are um, these are real obligations uh, that are generated at the international level and that countries um, at least ought to follow them. And then, you know, we can fight about what what these norms actually mean. And they may, you know, rulings may or not, may not be implemented in particular cases. But um but there's a there's a general sense that um, and general level of agreement that these are um, these are legitimately binding norms that are being generated by these institutions. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So maybe just to make this a little bit more concrete, so um, we could talk a bit about some of the work of the clinic um, right now that is at the intersection of of human rights and uh, and environmental issues. Uh, one, uh, my understanding is that one of the major um, important uses of human rights. Uh, for for environmental purposes is simply in protecting the individuals who engage in environmental uh, advocacy and activism in jurisdictions where they can be threatened, they can be jailed, they can be, um, you know, all kinds of terrible things sometimes happens to these environmental advocates. Um, and so, um, so you're working on right now, I think what I take to be a pretty major case in this area in um, Honduras, uh, dealing with a group of eight individuals who have been stuck in pre-trial, de- pre-trial detention, um, maybe even for a couple of years, uh, due to their their activism um, in that country. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about about that situation, and and we can explore this question of domestic versus international um, law in that context. Oh, oh sure, sure, yes, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that that case. So um, one of the 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 projects and, and cases that I really like to work with my students here at the clinic is, as you said, protecting those who protect others, those who protect the environment, those who protect human rights, because in the end, someone has to protect those people, right? They are like the first line of defense, but they are very vulnerable. Uh, so we've joined a group of organizations, international organizations, that for the past two years and a half have been working on, on this case, supporting this group of environmental defenders, that they, they, they were not activists before this happened. They were just a community. They, live in a, they lived in a rural area in Honduras near uh, a natural, national natural park. And that one day they just saw that the rivers that were their source of water uh, were polluted, two rivers. Um, so they, they, they tried to find the, the source of that. And what they learned at the time was that there was a company that was exploring uh, or doing some work in order to start uh, a mining exploration. Mm. Uh, and that was news to them. You know, they knew nothing about that. They had not been notified. Uh, so they just saw uh, when they started seeing the trucks of the company and they started to affect uh, the area, that's when they learned that something was happening. Uh, they assumed that something was approved. Uh, but sometimes in these countries, uh, operations start without uh, any source of official approval. Mm. So there were uh, a, a concern with that. So what they decided was to block the road, this dirt dear, dear road that was built by the, um, the company, mm-hmm. and they installed a camp. And they said, uh, we're not going to let any truck or any of this machinery to enter the park because it's a national park unless we have some answers. Uh, first, that uh, someone comes and, and see what is happening to the water. And second, we want to just to know what's going to uh, happen and how this is going to affect us. They stay there for a couple of, of weeks or, or actually months. And at some point, the company hires some security, uh, private security guards, uh, but also some members of, of the police in, in, in the country mm-hmm. came and tried to evict these people. Mm-hmm. And um, within that, uh, uh, violence happened. Um, a member of the community was shot dead. And mm-hmm. when that happened, uh, the community members um, detained, they did kind of a citizen's arrest of mm-hmm. the person in charge of this. 
and some of the uh, companies' uh, dumpsters were uh, caught fire and and then more police came. They handed down this person to, to the police and they said, we want this person to be investigated for what happened. And um, in response to that, uh, there was no investigation launch uh, in order to find out what happened with uh, the person that was dead. But 30 members of the community were under investigation for a number of crimes. Um, one of them was uh, illegal detention because of the uh-huh. citizen's arrest. The second was arson. The uh-huh. third was um, uh, damage to property, something that is uh, damage to property, trespassing, and uh, conspiracy. And this uh-huh. charge of conspiracy was um, one of the most concerning uh, uses of, of the criminal system in order to harass human rights defenders, and it's been documented in Honduras in other cases, uh, because with, with by charging them with this crime, they uh, sent the case not to the regular judge that would, over, that would hear uh, this sort of cases, but to a specialized jurisdiction that uh-huh. was put in place and that is meant to uh, investigate and go after organized crime. This is a jurisdiction that is uh, meant to deal with drug dealers, with all of these mafias. So, and the rules are are more stringent. Uh, So that happened uh, two and a half years ago. And um, that's how the case started. Uh, When when a group of these uh, members of the community learned about this, they went to the courthouse and they say, we hear that we, we are wanted and we just want to set the record straight. We want to be heard. And when when they show up for show up for that, for that, uh, sorry, uh, they they were detained and they've mm. been detained ever since. Mm. Um, and um, in, in all of these years, the um, Ministerio Público, which is uh, the prosecutor's office in Honduras, have presented zero evidence on, on why they consider, for example, that they, are, uh, they were uh, the ones that committed those crimes that uh, they have been now charged and, and they're uh, facing trial uh, in two weeks uh, for those crimes. So we've been helping with um, how to make these international standards find a way to be arguments in this domestic case. So that's what we've, we've been trying to do. So with that, for example, uh, what we have um, managed to do is that they drop the charge, this conspiracy charge uh, was dropped. The trespassing charge was dropped as well. Um, and using international standards, we showed that this was not the case, that they were, uh, even if they had any um, legitimate case against them, these were not the, the crimes that they, were, that, that they mm-hmm. should uh, be looking at. So um, that has been a, a, a part, of, part of what we've been doing. So what we do is we play on both fields, uh, the international and the domestic field. We follow what is happening in the, whole, in, the in the domestic uh, system. We file amicus briefs uh, in which we try to bring all of these arguments and the jurisprudence of international courts in order to help them um, better understand the legal obligations that they have. But also we have taken some of these uh, arguments to international instances in order for them to consider also the case and to provide specific recommendations to the Honduran state. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, at the, begin, um, at the beginning of this year, 2021, the United Nations Working Group on, Enfor- um, on Arbitrary Detentions rule that according to their knowledge and the rules that they apply, this was an arbitrary detention that disqualifies um, as an, uh, an amounts to an arbitrary detention. So yeah. which means that, um, that that's kind of a, a, um, a recognition of what of the work that the clinic and other organizations have been doing during the past two years, because they said, you know, if you look at your commitment, 
international commitments, uh, what you see here is that you have no case. So what is happening, and they've been in prison for over 26 months now, that is just arbitrary. You have no legitimate reason to have these people. Uh, you had no legitimate reason to put them in, in jail in the first place, and there is no reason to keep them there. So they requested Honduras for their immediate release, uh, and that was in, in February uh, this year. Sadly, Honduras has not complied with uh, with this recommendation and have made no effort to implement the recommendation. So that's why we're going to trial. This is the this is the tricky thing. So just to yeah. kind of unpack, there's this incredibly, you know, it's obviously so it's an important case for the individuals involved and and more generally for the cause of, you know, just protecting the ability of of people to engage in in activism about issues important to them in Honduras and, and elsewhere. So so you have the domestic trial um, that's 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 kind of proceeding after a you know a two year long detention, um, which is an incredibly long period of time, of course, and then and you have and you and your clinic and and other you know human rights lawyers who are involved in this case. Part of what they're doing is making arguments to the court in Honduras, so just the local jurisdiction, the domestic court there. But there are international norms that Honduras has as a country, either that are incorporated directly into its constitution or, you know, via, via a treaty that the, that Honduras has signed on to. And you're making arguments to the court saying, look, this is the right way to understand your own constitution, which incorporates the international law. This is the best way to interpret your treaty. And under these interpretations, essentially, you should let these people go. They, they're not legitimately held. And so that's kind of what's going on at the domestic level. And then internationally, we have this uh, UN process um, that's kind of operating in parallel uh, that also kind of reviews the facts of this case. Now, did Honduras defend itself before this UN um, entity or how did, how did that work? Because it sounds like that wasn't a trial or an appeal in a formal sense. It, it sounded somewhat more of a, a soft norms kind of body. It is, it is. Um, so how... how this proceedings work is um, someone complains, um, so the complainant sends all the documents to Geneva for the for the working group to assess the situation. So they would send uh, uh, the the legal proceedings that they have been um, undertaken. They would send you know a, a copy of the file, all the context information that they would have, they send it to, to the committee and the committee would study that and then would submit uh, all the information available to the state for the state to um, have a word, for the state to say, this is happening, this is not happening, I denied uh, the facts or, or, or whatever it is that their, their position is. And they would uh, grant them um, some time for, for, for that and after that the committee would make an independent uh, decision on this. Just looking at, they have different criteria, and they say, "Look, under international law, we will consider these detentions to be arbitrary or illegitimate." So, one, if you have no due process at all. Okay. Second, it it is clearly uh, you are persecuting someone because of their belief, because of their activities. So, for example, in this case, because of of uh, their human rights um, or environmental rights activities. So, we'll consider that. We'll consider an arbitrary detention if you, for example, if that person is a migrant and you don't have um, the uh, proper proceedings in place in order for uh, for your government to assess that situation and to consider if that person um, is rightfully um, an asylum seeker or not. So there are certain criteria. So what you have to send the committee is that information and to say, um, I, I do believe that this is an arbitrary detention. And that's what happened. They sent this um, case to Honduras and Honduras uh, replied, but they didn't reply within the, the term limit they had. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, they, they even though they, they, they did it after the deadline, uh, the committee consider, took into consideration their response and included that in, 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 the fi in their final decision. But um, ultimately, what they decided is that uh, they have five different criteria uh, and they found that four of those 
four of those criteria had been violated in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, the only one that was not violated here does not relate to the matter because it relates to uh, um, immigrants and, and people like trying to seek. Right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so just to show that um, it was a, a very clear violation. If, if you look at uh, at the argument, you see that there is a lot here that is not uh, happening as in the in the way that you know the domestic legal proceedings should be uh, happening. So um, that's what the, the committee said. Um, and when this committee, you know, so it, when it issues its its findings. Um, you know, I don't know the, the legal status of those findings, but it sounds like what happened is that Honduras essentially ignored them. Um, now, does that create a, a domestic political problem for Honduras when, when you have an international body like this finding that they're acting in an arbitrary and unlawful manner? Does that create um, international problems for them? Are there, are there other actors in the world who, you know, can take a report like this and use it to... Um, you know that 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 care essentially about this the contents of these reports <laughs> yes. and then, and, a, and act in some way on the basis of them. Yes. No. So, um, what we're claiming is that first the the first concern party here is Honduras itself. So uh, let's say that the uh, executive power uh, does not agree with the decision or is not happy with it and and doesn't want to comply with the recommendations or or we call them implement the recommendations. Um, so so what we're claiming is that court, domestic court, should step in and say, this is against our constitution because we committed as a country to comply with these standards. And if we have an authority that is not doing so, we need to to, to provide some relief here. We need to redress this situation. So what we're trying to, to work with is to convince, to persuade the Supreme Court that it is the right, not only the right thing to do, but also in the best interest of the state as a whole for the court to use these international standards and to signal the executive, this is the way to go. This is what Mm -hmm. we have to do. And we have a domestic remedy here to do so. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't happen, yes, uh, the international community should be Worried about this, should be concerned about this. Honduras is one of the is being um, named as one of, of of the most dangerous places to defend uh, the environment and human rights. Uh, during the past uh, five years, uh, dozens of human rights defenders have been either killed or received death threats or have been judicially harassed by different. Uh, actors, including um, official um, uh, uh, forces and and law enforcement um, forces in the country. So um, this is just part of a a bigger context, and that's Mm -hmm. our claim. Um, Sadly, for example, some years ago, the case of Berta Cáceres uh, made the news, the international news, this uh, very prominent um, environmental defender that was killed, um, not 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 far from from where this community is. So it is a concern about Honduras. The UN Special Rapporteur on Human, both the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders and the UN Special Rapporteur on Environment and the Right to Environment have expressed their concern and their preoccupation for what is happening in in Honduras. So this is something that the international communities as a whole should um, uh, tackle. And and if they would decide to act, uh, these recommendations uh, can play a very important role for them to understand what could be done in cases like this one. Yeah, it's um, it's such an important area, and I think it's easy in the in the U.S. and in Europe and other places um, to kind of take for granted the ability to engage in in civic life and, and in activism of different kinds, and not kind of face severe harassment and you know, up to the point of death. Um, and so it's 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 um, you know it's kind of just a baseline of having a functioning civil society. Obviously, is 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 the ability to engage in these kinds of activities. So this is. Um, as you were mentioning, one way that human rights relate to environmental protection and uh, environmental policy is is just ensuring the baseline 
for providing some backstop um, or check on the ability of the state to harass people who are engaged in environmental activism. Um, so that's so that's one important intersection. Uh, others ha have argued for a kind of an even more robust relationship between um, uh, rights generally and human rights specifically in the environment. So obviously there are folks who, um, many constitutions around the world include provisions um, stipulating that, that there are um, environmental rights, rights to a clean environment and the like. Um, and, and generally, I think there's some uh, push or some discourse to understand the concept of human rights as including things like a right to access to clean water or a right to a healthy environment or a right to a stable climate. Um, there have even been, uh, there's been litigation in the U.S., which has uh, argued that the, um, that the U.S. Constitution kind of uh, silently, but nonetheless um, significantly, provides some kind of right to a stable client climate. So, so what do you, I mean? You know, what what are your thoughts on on these efforts to include um, environmental, you know, kind of a right to the environment within the broad umbrella of human rights? I would assume, you know, I think at first glance, many people might be attracted to the idea. There there might be some pros and cons as well. So I'd be curious, you know, what are what are some of the positions out there? and the arguments that are made about um, including or understanding the human rights to include uh, right to a clean environment uh, or, you know, in, in general or in certain particulars. Sure, sure. What I've found in my practice is that there are at least three different levels at which these issues uh, or this relationship is being discussed and, and that uh, produces a lot of uh, questions and arguments and, and I would say interesting debates. The first is the more philosophical, the mm -hmm. second is the legal, and the third is the more practical. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the philosophical question, should be um, all should be these threats to humanity. So for example, environmental degradation, climate crisis, crisis, uh, dealt with a human rights-based approach or not? Is human rights the right tool to do this? Or, or uh, because human rights refers to humans and this is beyond humans, mm -hmm. larger than humans, part of it, related, sometimes not related, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I would say that's the first. And, and there are interesting positions there. So for example, some people that consider that they are two different fields, are not related at even Human rights are philosophically detrimental to environmental protection because human rights are based on the idea of individual entitlements. Mm. And that idea of individual entitlements will not get us far in the protection of something that is collective in nature. That's something that is not, not um, it's, it's hard to assess if we are just thinking of what is my right? Do I have an individual right to the environment, or maybe I shouldn't be talking about entitlement. Maybe um, what I have is obligations, and it is not my right, it is my obligation, because I'm more of a consumer than, um, than actually uh, uh, the one that will benefit from, from, from this. So there, there are these positions, so for example, that they say that um, these individual entitlements have promoted a culture of consumism and, you know, a capitalistic view of society and of my place and, and the ego place of, of humans saying that I have a right to whatever I want. And, and, and with that, we have seen an era of tremendous uh, environmental degradation. So what they say is just there are not only two different things, but looking at the world, uh, with with this idea of individual entitlements is just bad for nature. And there are some others that say that no, on the contrary, uh, they relate very well. And um, because the idea of that you need, when you talk about nature and environment, environment is just not only nature, but, you know, how different species and how different um both uh, human beings and, and other parts of nature um, can um, um, and, and should uh, be together 
and and be interrelated. Uh, And for that, the most humane way to deal with this is with principles that try to protect what is very basic to society, which is this idea of dignity. And with dignity, we're going to find that uh, most of the, for example, the the environmental degradation or or other problems associated with the environment are usually the the burden of them are are whereby um, vulnerable um, uh, segments in society. And and with that, we're going to open up uh, ideas on how to deal with this problem. So there that's, I would say, one level of the discussion. The second is legal. It's legal and strategic, I would say, because it's the idea of um, we lawyers like to compartmentalize, uh, and, and so we have international environmental law, and we have international human rights law. Is um, a good thing to have two different fields, or should we work towards one more integrated field? Mm-hmm. Should we, for example, advocate for new treaties that take international human rights law into the environment or the environment into international human rights law? Should we have, and it is um, more effective or conducive to better protection to have a right? So, for example, the UN have been advocated, they, has been, they, they have been advocating for um, a right to clean environment uh, for a decade now. And they just managed to pass a, res- a, a resolution that they call historic resolution a couple of months ago mm-hmm. declaring this. And some others say that there are just two different things and, and that maybe it's best to have them uh, in different camps. Um, and that they're not necessarily addressing the same issues. Uh, and so for that, different regulations must uh, be considered, that sometimes they might be in tension. Um, so it is just not the same thing. And so we, we need to understand how we can use one or the other and maybe read both of them um, at the same time, but but just keeping them apart. And some others are more integrationalist. Um, I would say that's a second type of discussion. Mm-hmm. And the third is more practical discussion on, let's say that we take either road, but how are you going to craft specific remedies, Mm -hmm. good remedies that we can assess compliance with, that remedies that we can monitor, remedies that we can make things happen with them. So that I would say that, um, so for example, some people that would say, Great. So your idea of the rights rights of nature is great. It's uh, philosophically okay. It is legally um, outstanding. But then, in practical terms, will did will this theory get me, you know, something specifically in real terms? Will be my rivers? Uh, will be um, my, my my communities or the communities that live in these certain areas be more protected? Can mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, I, I don't know, uh, go to my authorities and I will have better protection for 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 these rights or not? That's what in the end I'm interested in, and what is more conducive to that? Um, so I'd say those are the three different uh, levels of arguments that I've heard and I've come across during these past years. Um, and I think they all have uh, very interesting arguments and, and very challenging proposals. And, and, and I don't think we have you know, one definite answer on what is best. It's really, it's really interesting. Yeah, the, the three levels, um, you know, they're, they're kind of they overlap with each other, but they're they're very distinct. And and just thinking about you know from the practical side, you know, as you say, just imagine that you know we can make sense of this philosophically and and legally. It fits um, as a kind of appropriate extension of uh, human rights law and you know and and practice over the years. Um, just thinking about the practicality. So so as you, as you know, lawyers think a lot about remedies, right? Like it's. It's not really all that useful to have a right um, unless you can go to court and see that right vindicated in some meaningful way. And, you know, just to contrast it with the case of the of the environmental defenders in Honduras, like 
we know exactly, everyone knows what the remedy is in that case. <laughs> um, you know, like if, mm-hmm. if the human right is going to be vindicated, if human rights regime is going to be vindicated, then the p- people are let go. <laughs> they won't be detained anymore. Um, you know, that's, that's the remedy that's called for. And, um, you know, that's obviously a much, that's very straightforward and much less complicated than a question like, you know, an example that I sometimes use is the question of whether to, well, even in the, even to take Honduras um, and, and the specific instance there where you have a mine that is being contemplated. Now, from a human rights perspective, you know, putting aside the question of harassment um, of the of the individuals who are involved. So look, setting that aside and assume that you know, have a jurisdiction that's protecting basic civil rights and basic political rights. So people can protest, they can make arguments, they can do that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, substantively, there's the question of whether the mine should go forward or not, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't know what the domestic legal regime looks like here. Um, in the United States, we let mines move forward all the time. And there is law that governs when, when a mine can open, under what circumstances, after a particular kind of review and analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but imagine there's a right to, a, to clean water. And, and the, you know, the, the folks who oppose the mine raise that claim. Uh, on the other side, uh, the, the mining company or the government says, look, this mine is going to produce, you know, it's going to produce jobs. It's going to produce economic wealth, um, and so that's going to vindicate uh, people's human rights to, you know, their economic rights. Or, you know, we're going to use some of this money to build schools, and people have a right to an education. And we're going to put in a water filter filtration system, so people will still have clean water. They just, you know, they won't be able to get it out of the river. Um, and, you know, and we, we have rights, you know, as property holders to not have our, our land expropriated or whatever else. And so you could imagine lots of different potential claims being brought. And again, assume that this isn't a philosophical problem, but just mm-hmm. as a practical problem, how does the, how is a court supposed to um, kind of navigate such a complex landscape to craft a remedy that would actually vindicate these rights in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, that's a very important point uh, because um, litigation of these cases, it's very difficult because there are so many interrelated things here, you know, um, and, and a lot of tensions, you know, the tension that you mentioned, for example, in terms of uh, their development, economic development and the use of natural resources, the issue of uh, who owns what and how that can affect others. Uh, I think those are, are really important questions that judges need to take seriously. Um, so that's why I, I think the more effective human rights litigation or, or rights-based litigation when it comes to environment are that one that protects people to know what is going on, for example. Mm-hmm. So litigation regarding access to information. And I've worked on, on cases in the past and and there are right now um, specific treaties on that, that, that are, uh, I'd say, environmental treaties that but has a lot of, that have a lot of language, uh, human rights language. The Harhus uh, Convention in Europe or the Escazú Convention in Latin America, for example, that is uh, all about we need to know more. We need to know what are the risks here. We need to know what is what we are going to do. We need to know what are the protection factors affecting this or that um, Arabi. So, you know, access to information. That's critical. Critical for judges to make decisions. Critical for governments to license projects or gover- critical for they to understand what their policies are going to be. Critical for communities and for societies to understand what their position should be and what the impacts or the the, the probable impacts of, of certain things are going to be. So that's one thing that I favor very much. And I think that's something in which we can have a remedy, right? That uh, access to information, provide information, um, that's, that's one thing. The second is how to protect spaces for public discussion and for public participation. So a lot of this, uh, what you have is contested interests. 
and you have people that want to use these resources in one way and other people that want to use it in a different way. But they need to have a space in order to voice those concerns, to ask those questions, to participate. And I think human rights um, litigation have provided a good platform for doing that with at least two kind of mechanisms. One, if does uh, the consultations for indigenous peoples, uh, you know, the right, what, 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 what we today consider as the right to uh, prior and informed consultation for indigenous peoples. Um, that is in, in the ILO convention and in other pieces of, of international treaties. Um, I think that's, that's a, a very important, uh, a protective measure in which, again, you can have a remedy there, you know, because it's uh, the idea that you, you, you are not veto. Uh, it is not that you cannot intervene in sector, cer certain areas. It's not that you cannot have uh, development projects or it is that you have to consult first, that you have mm -hmm. to let know the community and to make sure that they understand what is happening. Mm -hmm. And the same with popular consultations in Latin America. They have been very uh, popular <laughs> uh, sure. in, in the past years in, in Peru, Colombia and other places. They have, you know, communities saying that we want to have a say. You know, we understand that it will be critical for economic development for countrywide. But still, the burden of this is going to be this is going to be in our backyard. Right. Mm -hmm. So we just want to be part of these discussions. We want to be part of these decisions. And so you have to let us participate here and how to promote those um, spaces in which democracy can take place in a better way um, so that these projects. And, and I think it's in, in the best interest of the project, because if, if there are actually uh, in, to the benefit of the community or the country, then they will have more backing, they're going to have support, and the communities are going to be a force behind those projects instead of um, a force against them. So um, that sort of litigation, I think it's, it's, it's something that uh, human rights defenders have promoted. And in a good way, I think they have opened up spaces for um, addressing more critically these issues, and, and, but also for allowing participation. Um, and a final way in which I would say rights-based litigation um, have been very important is in, in promoting compliance with legislation or with mm. political commitment, previous political commitments. That litigation that is not set to say you should have this or that policy that litigation that says you committed to this specific policy, so mm -hmm. we just want you to apply that, right? So, for example, litigation in which you said you have uh, environmental regulations already, and they say that you cannot, you know, uh, surpass this threshold right. or that you are required to do this and you're doing nothing or you are not doing enough, right? right. So, or you made this commitment on reductions or whatever it is, and you are not doing, you're not honoring that commitment. So that's what we want you to do. Right. And again, it is not that the necessary remedy is just to say that this is the number or this is the threshold or whatever, but to promote using the court and the process of compliance with this, an opportunity for, to have this discussion and right. what, sh what the policy should be. And I think, so there's a couple of things there. So one is, you know, the, and the kind of the last um, category of cases, um, human rights um, kind of itself as a concept or as a legal construct isn't, um, isn't the driving force. There you have a, say, legislation, right, or some other act, uh, mm -hmm. uh, some other legal act that creates a, its own binding obligation to you know, to do whatever, right? To, to maintain some level of air quality or to um, not allow development in some area or something like that. And it's just a matter of using the courts to ensure the government's uh, compliance with its, own, with its own law. And human rights there, again, you tell me, but it sounds like they're, the, the, the important part of the concept there is mostly just that the, the right to have access to the courts and to have recourse mm -hmm. to the courts to be able to make 
um, to make these legal arguments, kind of what we might call in the U.S. like standing, right, so that you can get into court and, and have effective access to justice. That's correct, yes. That's what we would call, uh, from a human rights international perspective, access to remedy or access to courts. Right, right. And so that's that's the important thing there. You know, you know, along these similar lines, I mean, one of the ways that I've interpreted or um, the, the push to extend the concept of human rights to include things like uh, right to clean water or to a clean environment is actually ex- exactly this, is to try to get decisions out of context like the legislature or the executive um, where maybe there's a fear that those institutions are ineffective or that they've been captured by powerful special interests or they're not representing um, kind of the true you know, population interests, um, and instead to move decision-making to courts, which are kind of understood to be more independent of powerful interests or more effective or, or something else. And so I was curious, you know, given that you've spent your, your career before uh, courts in lots of different countries, um, but primarily in Latin America, as just as a strategic matter, you know, do you think that there's some value in trying to um, move decisions away from institutions like legislatures or the executive and into courts, or do you think that strategy in general um, has limitations that should be recognized? I would say um, I understand why it's so persuasive, and it's an interesting concept, especially when you come from from countries in which you have complete inaction or mm-hmm. or. Or, or not even in action, in which you have legislatives and and, and executive executive powers that are just operating against these rights, against the will of people, against right. you know communities. So I understand why courts can be you know um, a very uh, attractive resource for for communities. But what I would say is that um, in order to have the correct implementation of a right you need the interplay or all of those branches of the state. You need to have a a powerful judiciary that is willing to set processes in motion, that is willing to say, here is a violation, that is willing to say, this is what I know, this is as far as I would go, this is what I don't know, and this is what I cannot do. Uh, So for that, what I need is to let the executive do or you, you know what I mean? So you mm-hmm. need a court that understand what is the best role that it can play in making these rights real. You need a legislative power that is going to support this. You need a democratic process in which, you know, people would find that this is the right way to go, in which that they would say we need certain regulations in which they need, um, we are going to, raise our voices and we're going to try to set this as as part of our political process. And you also need the executive. The executive is very important. So I would say that courts should be looked at as as, um, a force that can help unclog spaces that, that have been, you know, clogged by inaction or or this sort of, of practices, but it's not the is they are not the game changer. Uh, they're just a tool that would help you to awake these other powers. Mm-hmm. But in a way, if you use the core the core to uh, just shortcut uh, the other powers, you are fooling yourself mm-hmm. because what you can have is a very beautiful uh, decision. You know, a ruling that says uh, this is what uh, environmental policy uh, um, should like. This, you know, this is what uh, a, a, a beautifully written decision that is not going to be implemented. So it is just all of them are pieces, mm-hmm. uh, and you need all of that, uh, all of them uh, working together in order to make some change. Yeah, so maybe as an example of this, we could return um, briefly to the to the consultation process that you've described mm-hmm. a little bit. So, you know, again, I, what what I am most familiar with is U.S. environmental law, and um, you know, we have 
very roughly speaking, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act that requires uh, major projects of the of the federal government or major projects that are um, require approvals by the federal government to go through a process of um, collecting information, publicizing that information, create opportunities for the public to offer its views um, on the project and the like. And that's you know that's been around for you know several many decades at this point, and other countries have adopted versions of of these types of processes. One critique that's leveled against uh, NEPA, as it's called in the U.S., is that it doesn't have any substantive requirements to it. it. Just there's just the requirement to collect information, publish it, offer opportunities for public comment, that kind of thing. It's purely procedural. Um, so when I teach environmental law, my my students sometimes get frustrated uh, that that NEPA lacks any kind of substantive component to it. But it sounds as though you know you're of the view that these types of processes, or at least the the versions that you're familiar with that you described in, uh, that involve indigenous communities and these these rights to consultation, can be meaningful. Meaningful, and I'm curious if it's meaningful in the sense of creating a, a um, uh, creating a more inclusive en- environment or a, or helping to create a, a more democratic conversation that is useful in its in its own right. But then there's also the question of does it ultimately affect outcomes and lead to different kinds of projects being undertaken or, or that kind of thing. So, so yeah, so how do you see these types of consult, consultative processes um, and these information processes, which can be protected, as you note, um, in an effective manner by courts, uh, how do you see those ultimately affecting environmental outcomes? In my experience, every time that these processes happened, they really changed the way in which a uh, certain topic or project was treated, both mm. publicly and um, by the community, by the press, by uh, population at large in the country. So mm. I think they can be very consequential, you mm. know, even if, if you don't have specific substantive clauses that would alter the the, the substance of it, mm-hmm. I think uh, participation will find a way to, you know, bring to the table certain concerns that if, if you know, if you if you have uh, people that you know how to mobilize uh, uh, the community to have access to international resources that no, you know, uh, this kind of standards can mm. later, you know, level this kind of arguments and, and, and make the process more substantive than, than, than the opposite uh, or, or the alternative that would be just to have a rubber stamp decisions. So I would say that um, I, I have some faith in democracy mm. um, or, or I would say a lot of faith in democracy uh, because I've seen that this can be very, very effective to in order to change the conversation. Of course, uh, there is a lot of uh, you know cases in which um, nothing happened in the end. You can have uh, the best arguments, cases in which you can have the law on your side, and you know the driving forces of this are very powerful and they wouldn't move an inch, and and that happens. Uh, a lot, you know, and I can see the frustration of many people saying that this is just not enough. Mm. Uh, but I would say that if we would invest in more democracy on more, you know, uh, local discussion of this would be, would be, you know, moving in the right direction. We, we don't even have that, right? So right. if we have more of a culture of discussing these issues or paying attention to d- different arguments or opening ways for people to participate, I would say that um, for me, that would change a lot in the way that we handle this sort of, of conflicts. Um, definitely. Maybe just to, you know, again, to, uh, return a little bit to the con- conversation that we're having about Honduras and the environmental defenders there and, and almost engage in a little reimagining of you know, so we, what, what actually happened, right? Mining company goes in, s- essentially secretly or without public notice, starts to engage in these preliminary mining activities. You have a community that's water is threatened, that, you know, uh, uh, doesn't feel like they have a lot of recourse other than to, you know, essentially take matters into their own hands and, uh, and you know, engage in direct action. That leads to a violent confrontation where someone's killed and then the authorities are involved and now people are detained. Um, and have been detained for two years. I mean, this clearly is a 
completely dysfunctional process for trying to mm-hmm. figure out how to manage environmental conflict. So, you know, what would a process, you know, that you think makes sense in a place like Honduras look like? You know, um, I think some people might just say, of course, the mine shouldn't exist. But, you know, assuming that there's <laughs> going to be, be a conversation, um, you know, where you have a consultation process and, and people's human rights are, are vindicated, you know, what would what would that alternative reality have looked like in, in, a, in a place like Honduras in the, in the conflict that we're talking about? Yeah, uh, that, that's a good question. I would say, uh, an, an alternative reality should play on on a nationwide level and on a more domestic, more kind of the local specific case uh, case level. So nationally, I would say Honduras should have this conversation of what is development to us and what what is uh, what we want to. Uh, take out of our natural resources and in which way and and who should we ask about what are the best ways for us to use those resources mm-hmm. and to engage in a nation, nationwide conversation with different stakeholders and just try to figure that out. I would say that would... Um, that is definitely needed not to place all of the burden of the discussion to the Wapinol community, right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not they taking you know these decisions for Honduras. It mm-hmm. is the Honduras society just trying to say that we are a country with these challenges, economic challenges, right? And we have these resources. How are we going to use them? And for what reason and how? And how those priorities that we have align or not with our international commitments, mm-hmm. and we what is what are those stakeholders that need that we need to consult if we want to do something different or not? I think that's very important because what we all usually see is that those conversations are missing, mm-hmm. you know, at this level. So when this very vulnerable community needs mm-hmm. to stand up to this project is that, oh, but you are not, you know, including uh, the views and the needs of those in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital, or those, you know, across the country that would benefit uh, from this if we, you know, have this mine and it operates and it produces revenue and all that stuff. And, you know, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so. That's shifting the conversation to uh, these communities that they shouldn't have to be, you know, the openers of these uh, discussions in the first place. So I think that's uh, one point. And the second is that it should be a process of consultation, a process of uh, before they start um, exploration or before they start the planning of this, they should just go and consult the community, uh, explain what is happening, uh, why this is happening, how they are envisioning these projects, what are going to be the risks and, and the impacts of this, how these are more likely to affect them, and what alternatives there are. And it start with that at a more local level. And I think that's that's how they could, you know, um, as, as a community, try to respond to this. And and and, and what I, in, in at least in my experience, what I've seen is that most of these communities are very receptive, receptive to, you know, and open to possibilities and to understand how um, this could be uh, something that benefit them in, instead of, of, of damaging them. Um, but but you need to start with that. And there might be some projects that we should just say no, right. you know, at the local, nation, or global level. I don't know. Let's say that what we understand is that you know it makes sense for for us, for example, to have this kind of um, I don't know projects that might be putting a lot of stress in the environment, but we need them. I don't know, like uh, farming. Mm-hmm. You know, extensive farming. Of course, there's putting up some stress in the in on the, on, the, on the earth, but we need them because we need to feed people. But right. there might be others in which you say, like, I don't need to wear gold, right? right? So maybe gold is not someone that we 
you know, like mining for gold, maybe we should forbid. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. And that makes sense because, you know, um, we get to that understanding. Right? But I don't think just to say not to mining all across the board is going to get us somewhere. Right, right. Great. Well, yeah, I mean, that is a is a very attractive alternative reality. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, we're all grateful uh, for the work that you do, you do to to try to bring that about um, step by step. So um, and thanks again for chatting today. This has been a really, really interesting conversation, Camilo. Now, my pleasure. Um, and thank you very much for, for having me and for this uh, very challenging uh, questions and and. And yeah, and, and for providing an opportunity for us to challenge our own uh, self-proclaimed truths, uh, I think there is a lot in the human rights field that we believe that we are uh, the owners of the ultimate only truth. So I, I really welcome, you know, uh, all the visions that are trying to challenge us to think differently and to just to see if, if we are onto something good or not.